The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by IBM. Big data at the speed of business. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to welcome members of our military who are joining us from remote locations over the internet today. Thank you for being with us again. I also want to take a moment to thank Tableau Software for their hospitality while I was in Seattle, speaking at the beautiful Seattle Convention Center. In just a moment, we'll be speaking with one of the central figures in Watergate who spent four years transcribing previously un undocumented White House tapes in search of the truth. If you're a longtime listener of the Costa Report, you know I often say there is no substitute for going back to source material. And that is exactly what our guest today, former White House counsel to President Nixon and author of the riveting new book, The Nixon Defense, Mr. John Dean has done. Uh, He's here to walk us through the evidence so that uh, history buffs, conservatives, liberals, conspiracy advocates alike uh, have a firm possession of the facts, uh, which is the only known inoculation against revisionist history. Uh, But before Mr. Dean joins us, uh, as is my custom each week, let me tell you a little about his background. John Wesley Dean III was born in Akron, Ohio, uh, attended grade school in Flossmoor, Illinois, and high school at Virginia's Staunton Military Academy. He performed his undergraduate studies at Colgate University and the College of Worcester and received his law degree from Georgetown University. Immediately following law school, uh, Dean joined a law firm in our nation's capital and was subsequently recruited to become chief minority counsel to the Republican members of the United States House Committee on the Judiciary. From here, he went on to serve as associate deputy in the attorney general's office under John Mitchell. And in the summer of 1970, Dean was appointed White House counsel to President Nixon. Never could Dean have imagined that a year and a half later, he would be sitting in a room listening to G. Gordon Liddy's plan for gathering campaign intelligence, a plan which was quickly disapproved. Later that spring, Liddy resubmitted a scaled-down version of his plan, which was secretly approved by Mitchell, leading to a subsequent break-in and arrest of five burglars and the trail which reporters Woodward and Bernstein followed all the way to the Oval Office. The rest is history. Forgoing immunity, Dean offered testimony which tied the president to the cover-up of Watergate. Following Watergate, Dean worked as an investment banker and became a best-selling author. Yet despite having lived through one of the greatest scandals to rock the White House, certain questions remained. So he tediously backtracked, and he's here today to tell us what all those White House tapes which were never transcribed and the famous missing 18 and a half minutes really tell us. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report, former White House counsel and author of the Nixon Defense, Mr. John Dean. Welcome to the program, Mr. Dean. Hi, Rebecca. Very good to have you aboard. Thank you for taking time to be with us. Thank you. That was a pretty pretty good summary. <laughs> we'll, give, we'll give you an A. All right. I'll take that A. <laughs> uh, Robert Dalek uh, recently wrote in the New York Times that we suffer from historical amnesia. Uh, it's been uh, 40 years since President Nixon stepped down uh, owing to Watergate, which means uh, there are a lot of listeners that are in their 30s, 40s, and even in their 50s who may not be fully aware of how Watergate permanently affected the office of the presidency. So when you're addressing younger audiences, uh, say on the college circuit, for example, where, where do you start? Well, I've been at, I've been at uh, USC's Annenberg School for about a decade and a half, and so I've been seeing a flow of students. I, I go over there 
least twice a year and do uh, uh, programs for them. Mm -hmm. And uh, today's students, even the high school students, get nothing on Watergate. I mean, it is as remote as Teapot Dome. Uh, <laughs> they, they have no conception of what, what was involved or uh, any of the players and what have you. What happens, typically before I arrive, uh, they have talked to their parents and say, oh, well, you, you've got to go to that lecture. And so I get, I get good turnouts for my sessions over there. But anyway, uh, I just start with the basics, and I tell them that really it was a bungled burglary that morphed into a much broader scandal that dealt with Richard Nixon's abuses of power, and that's really what Watergate, uh, in a nutshell, was. It, uh, uh, it's a, a tragedy, and it's a travesty both. And uh, as we progress in this conversation, I'll explain more of what I, I know that I didn't know when I lived through it. Yes, uh, that's what fascinated me the most. I mean, you were a central figure in bringing these offenders to justice. And somewhere along the line, even you became convinced that there were still many things which were not known. For example, uh, a thousand hours of White House tapes that had not been transcribed, uh, which you then painstakingly took upon yourself to assemble a team to do. So so what made you decide to take four years out of your life and, and start reviewing uh, available sources? material? Well, had I had known, Rebecca, I probably wouldn't have done it. <laughs> what, what, what happened is my editor uh, at, at Viking Penguin, uh, and this was my third book with him, I've done, this was my, I think, my 11th or 12th book, uh, and I read it, they're a wonderful publishing house, and he said, you know, you really have any questions in your mind about Watergate you'd like to address, because we were then approaching the uh, initially the, the 40th anniversary of the Watergate break-in, which was on uh, uh, June 17th of 2012. Mm -hmm. Then uh, it's a kind of a rolling anniversary, so he said, or uh, Nixon's resignation on August 9th of 2014. He said, that looks like an opportune time where there'll be some media attention if you have a, any inclination to write a book on that subject. And I said, well, I, I thought about it. And I said, I do have one question. And I, I said, I... As close as I was to all this, I really have never understood how somebody as savvy as Nixon, and a highly intelligent man, could have let a bungled burglary uh, really just uh, destroy his presidency. Uh, it, it just it should not have happened. And I and I did, I said, you know, I think I think most of the tapes may be uh, transcribed. There'll probably be some that aren't. I'll have to dig out. But when I, when I got into it, I realized that very few of the tapes had been transcribed. There were, I found 80 in the Watergate prosecutor's office. I, I found another 320 uh, that Professor Cutler, a historian, had done. There are partial transcripts that he had done. And I found nobody had cataloged all the conversation. So I went on and on. You're able to do that today because the archives, before they've been able to release any of them, have had to prepare uh, what they call subject log, because they have to extract any classified information or any personal Nixon information. For example, a, a conversation with his wife or his, his daughters, unless they were directly addressing government business, uh, those are all pulled out. So they have, they have to go through them. They're not transcripts, but they, they're able to hear who, you know, who's talking, uh, identify that person, and often then uh, a, just a notation as to the subject they we're talking about. So that when Watergate came up, it was not clearly a, an identifiable subject. And at the time I did it, uh, that material wasn't digitized, so I had to manually go, th <coughs> go through the subject logs to find all the conversations. It took about six months just to e even, you know, identify them all. And I found uh, about 600 conversations that nobody outside the archives appeared to have ever even listened to. Uh, now, this is no easy feat because you point out that many of these recordings were uh, had such poor sound quality, but fortunately, we have new technologies which allowed you to enhance the voices and subdue some background noise so you could take advantage of uh, uh, the new technology in order to transcribe things that otherwise we might not have been able to uh, uh, do in the past. And I believe that you also um, went through uh, more than 150,000 Watergate documents. I mean, the numbers alone were astounding in the time 
commitment uh, and and the uh, group of students that you had helping you is just uh, really outstanding. And and I think uh, we're going to take a short break here, but I do want to say that this book, um, in my view, is. Um, it's an important book because uh, it answers and reinforces some of the questions and answers that we've come up with with the uh, limited body of information that we did have on Watergate. So we're going to take a short break, but stay right where you are. We'll be right back with Mr. John Dean. You're listening to the Costa Report. Do you love creating salads as much as you enjoy eating them? Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, cookbook author and culinary expert. Dole inspires fresh and wholesome dishes for any meal with their wide selection of salad blends and all-natural salad kits. From the mild and tender texture of sweet butter lettuce to the crunch of classic romaine sprinkled with colorful shredded carrots and red cabbage, Dole has over 30 salad blends to satisfy every palate. If you're looking for the ultimate in convenience, try Dole's unique salad kit combinations that include farm-fresh lettuces and vegetables, mouth-watering all-natural toppings, and specially made dressings. It's all you need to make a distinctively delicious salad. The possibilities are endless. Visit www.dolesalads.com for recipes and other ideas to feed your culinary imagination. Every day our world gets more complicated. Not only is new information coming at us faster than we can manage, new regulations, technology, and the effects of globalization have made it much more difficult to succeed. That's why I wrote The Watchman's Rattle, a book that, for the first time, explains how complexity makes it hard to separate facts from fiction and eventually causes us to make important decisions based on unproven beliefs. And not just us, our leaders also fall prey to this phenomena. But here's the good news. Once you know the symptoms to watch for, you can safeguard against them. So please, go to RebeccaCosta.com. That's RebeccaCosta.com. And order your copy of The Watchman's Rattle. It only takes a few minutes and the shipping is free. That's RebeccaCosta.com. Do it now. You'll be glad you did. Prices for base buildings only may not be available in some areas. This is an alert. If your business or church is still planning to build this year, now is the time to call General Steel and save. That's right. It's not too late to start building. And General Steel can save you as much as half the cost and time of conventional construction. As much as half. Call General Steel now for the quality and the price in a pre-engineered steel building that you just can't beat. What does this mean? Well, how about a 50 by 100 foot building for under $35,000? Don't pay thousands more than you should without calling General Steel first. Call 800-98-STEEL today and save as much as half the cost and time of conventional construction. Don't let rising steel prices has put your project in jeopardy. Call now to lock in your price for three months. Call 800-98-STEEL. That's 800-987-8335. Don't spend thousands of dollars more than you should. Call 800-98-STEEL today. Attention KSEO listeners, this is Dave Michaels with two special announcements. This weekend's Longevity Sale will be at two locations. On Saturday from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., the sale will be taking place here at KSEO Studios, 2300 Portola Drive in Santa Cruz. On Sunday, we'll be at the Santa Cruz Flea Market from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m., right next to the Food Pavilion. The Santa Cruz Flea Market is at 2260 SoCal Avenue. So come on down to the Longevity Sale on Saturday at KSEO and on Sunday at the Santa Cruz Flea Market. Also, be sure to join KSEO every Wednesday afternoon from 4 to 7 p.m. as Flight 1080 broadcasts live from the Santa Cruz Farmer's Market. For over 20 years, the Santa Cruz Farmer's Market has been connecting locals with the freshest produce around. Enjoy good times and great food as Flight 1080 takes to the airwaves every Wednesday at the Santa Cruz Farmer's Market. Again, the Longevity Sale will be at KSEO on Saturday and at the Flea Market on Sunday. And don't forget, Flight 1080 will be broadcasting live from the Santa Cruz Farmer's Market every Wednesday in downtown Santa Cruz. Be there!
Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is former White House counsel, central figure in the Watergate hearings, and best-selling author, Mr. John Dean. Uh, Now, Mr. Dean, uh, there are several revelations which come to light in your new book, The Nixon Defense. Uh, For example, the evidence, uh, all of the evidence, including the new evidence that you uh, have come upon, uh, proves that Nixon did not authorize, nor was he involved in the decisions to break into the Democratic National Committee headquarters at Watergate. Uh, But he was intimately involved in the cover-up once the burglars were caught. And in fact, uh, you say that the evidence is quite consistent on this point, both transcribed and previously untranscribed evidence. Can you speak to that for a moment? Yeah, first let me take your point on the fact that he was not involved in the Watergate break-in per se. That's correct. Uh, But I don't think there's any question that he created an atmosphere where people like Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt thought they were doing the right thing by developing plans for such crazy activity. Uh, They had worked at the White House, indeed been authorized to undertake a break-in while there, and nobody ever reprimanded them when when, uh, they not only bungled it, but they put the White House in direct jeopardy. So they, they, they got a promotion for that, if you will, by uh, uh, being sent over to the re-election committee telling nobody uh, of this past activity. So it, Nixon, now Nixon didn't have direct knowledge of that either, but John Ehrlichman, who did authorize it, certainly thought Nixon would approve of it. Indeed, yes. he retroactively uh, did say, well, had I been asked, I would have approved it. But, but uh, on the question of the cover-up, uh, he is involved literally from the outset, notwithstanding the fact, to my surprise, how little information he's being given that's accurate. He's getting information from the Washington Post and Bob Haldeman initially. Then uh, John Ehrlichman, he begins asking him some questions and getting information from both Haldeman and Ehrlichman. I don't really meet with him uh, to talk about Watergate until eight months after the arrest. So for those first eight months or so, uh, his only sources are, are his news summary and the Post and largely Haldeman. Uh, but yet he will approve and bless every key element of the cover-up as it gets underway. Well, you know, I talk about this uh, amongst my colleagues here. Uh, I think it makes a difference whether someone perceives themselves uh, in an office such as the presidency as to whether you're a ruler or you're a leader. And clearly from the language that's used in these tapes, often vulgar and very direct, plain speaking, if you will, um, you can hear that Nixon really considered himself a ruler uh, to which blind allegiance and loyalty was owed. No question. Uh, I did a book called Conservatives Without Conscience, where I looked at a small group of conservatives who are clearly authoritarian personalities. Richard Nixon is clearly an authoritarian personality. Uh, a lot of his followers were uh, authoritarian followers. They would literally click their heels, salute, and go do whatever told thoughtlessly. Uh, one of the reasons I did this the book on, on conservatism uh, was to try to understand this mentality. While I didn't really address the Nixon White House, I went very broad uh, and based this on very solid social science on authoritarianism that's really been developing really since post-World War II, uh, and I was surrounded by these people, and I really wanted to better understand uh, their thoughtless processes, for lack of a better description of the way they often respond, and Nixon did. I think you've nailed it uh, in calling seeing himself is a ruler, not a leader. Yes, he wasn't interested in particularly leading or governing, and that comes across in the uh, directives he gives, the tone he gives, the words he uses, and the fact that he uh, uh, expects blind obedience and loyalty. Now, let's move on to the controversial missing 18 and a half minutes of tape. Well, what's your read on that? Well, first of all, I think it's been uh, overplayed, overhyped. <laughs> well, that's what we in the media do. <laughs> that's exactly right. And it's obviously it's a good mystery as to who did it and what was erased. I think it's less important who did it than what was erased. And that's pretty easy to determine when you've listened to all the conversations and you know and understand uh, Nixon's and everybody else's entire body of knowledge, if you will. Uh, and... What I, I, I think it's clear 
Uh, there are six P. I, I did a, an appendix on this in the book because I knew the question would come up. Of course. So I, I just uh, I said we'll just pull this out of the story and plunk it down into an appendix because there will be a, a repeating question on this issue. Uh, and so there are six people who actually, when you look at the chronology of when it happened, had could have had access to the tape and the machine which erased it. Uh, and Nixon is, of course, one of them, but they go down to people that uh, most people have never heard of, uh, military aides and people like that, who actually were in, 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 uh, had access to the material. But who did it is not as important to me as what was erased. And it's pretty clear, again, when you take the sequence of events and the timing of it, that it was a, a conversation where Nixon really uh, shot down his own final defense, which was that he had no, no knowledge of the Watergate cover-up until I told him on March 21st, 1973, uh, that there was a cover-up. And mm-hmm. he claimed that was the, the point at which he first learned. Of course, that was a, a gigantic lie. It was a gigantic gamble that he uh, uh, made that his final defense. And uh, the smoking gun tape would come along and put the lie to him earlier. The, six, the, the 18 and a half minute gap occurs on the 20th. Uh, the smoking gun tape on the 23rd, three days later. Mm-hmm. That entire week, he's discussing cover-up. Uh, if the prosecutors had gone for any other tape, there would have been there could have been a dozen smoking ta- uh, gun tapes that week. Uh, it just happened they had probable cause to go for the 23rd uh, because of uh, other information that had come out in the investigation. Uh, so that's what it is. It's a conversation about the fact that uh, some phase of the cover-up uh, where he and Holloman are talking about it on the, the you know, the, on the morning of the 20th, the first recorded conversation that he has with Holloman on the, where Watergate comes up, and uh, it would have had, the reason it was erased, it would have destroyed this final defense he set up that he had no knowledge of the cover-up. Well, I think also in your book, you um, sort of vindicate Nixon's secretary, who, <laughs> who for a period of time was blamed. Well, she, confess, she confessed to it. And, and yeah, I, I know. It's something that mechanically we, we found this expert. She wasn't able to. Yeah. She wasn't able to do it. She wasn't able to do it, but she, she took a bullet for the chief. <laughs> she took a bullet, is right. <laughs> that, that's right. And, uh, you know, and I, I think a lot of people were prepared to take a bullet, and that gets back to your motivation for doing this research. Research, which is um, lots of people were willing to stand up and take the responsibility. So, you know, why why did it get bungled uh, so badly when you're surrounded with uh, with so many loyal soldiers? And I can't blame you, even in spite of the fact that when you were giving your testimony, a lot of your testimony was largely dependent on the copious notes that you had taken and uh, your memory and so on and so forth. And I, I have to believe as you were going back and listening to these tapes, you were saying, you were going, you know, okay, now I remember that. That's why I wrote that in my notebook. And, you know, that's that's why I said what I said. And, you know, uh, I, I have to believe it filled in maybe even a, a couple of gaps for yourself. Now we have to take an, another break. Uh, we will be right back with John D. And we're going to find out what President Nixon knew about Deep Throat. You're listening to the Costa Report. Big data is changing the way organizations work. From data-driven marketing and ad targeting to the connected car, Big Data is fueling product innovation and new revenue opportunities. It's creating a culture in which business and IT leaders join forces to realize value from all data. They infuse analytics everywhere and make speed a differentiator, gaining competitive advantage from faster, more informed decisions. Leading organizations are creating new business models, developing new roles, and defining new big data architectures, including an infrastructure that can manage and process exploding volumes of structured and unstructured data, in motion as well as at rest, while protecting data privacy and security. Find out how IBM Big Data and Analytics can transform your business. Visit www.ibm.com slash big data today. 
Hey, SoCal High Class of 1974, this is Deanna Del Bianco Lindgren, and I want to give you information about our upcoming 40th class reunion to be held on Saturday, October 4th at the Santa Cruz Dream Inn. Go to www.SoCalHigh1974.com to register right away and obtain more detailed information. That's www.SoCalHigh1974.com. See you there. Hi, Register Pharmacist Ben Fuchs here. I've been studying healthy bodies for 35 years, and what I've got to tell you may shock and surprise you, but if you listen up, it may change your life. While many hormones are regulated as prescription drugs, there are several important ones that are available over the counter. Progesterone and pregnenolone are two that immediately come to mind. You can get both online and in health food stores, and each provide relaxing and estrogen-balancing benefits. Another important over-the-counter hormone is called DHEA. Bodybuilders love DHEA for its muscle-building properties. DHEA is also important for supporting the health of the immune system. It can be especially helpful for fighting cancer. In one study on breast cancer-prone mice, DHEA supplementation reduced tumor incidence by 50 to 100 percent. And if you're trying to lose weight, DHEA can be helpful for you too. In one study from Temple University, DHEA-treated mice tended to stay thin no matter how much they ate. In a second study, middle-aged obese rats lost weight when fed DHEA-supplemented food. In fact, if ever there was a hormone with lots of positive health benefits, this is the stuff. Back in the 1980s, the FDA actually banned over-the-counter sales of DHEA. These days, DHEA is readily available and reasonable amounts can be taken with rare side effects and no toxicity. Overdosing on DHEA may lead to some acne or maybe some hair loss, but you've really got to take a lot to experience these effects, which reverse upon dose reduction. With all these benefits, DHEA can be considered the quintessential hormone of wellness. Because natural DHEA levels tend to decline as we get older, supplementing with a small amount, maybe 5 to 10 milligrams a day as father time takes its toll on our bodies, is probably a good idea. Pharmacist Ben here, urging you to go to kscohealth.com to order Beyond Tangy Tangerine, the Healthy Start Pack, and other nutritional supplements that I personally use and recommend. You can purchase these premium quality products at wholesale prices online at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. I'm the pharmacist that believes that staying healthy and strong is not only about medicine, it's about giving your body the raw materials it needs to do its work. Go to kscohealth.com. Make sure you check out the cool videos too at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. Join me for It's a Question of Balance with Ruth Copland on Saturday evening, 8 till 10. My in-depth arts interview is with award-winning journalist, historian, and New York Times best-selling author, Hampton Sides. In the Out and About feature, we ask, what is the effect of defining ourselves by our political party? I interview local people and get their opinions. Join me Saturday evening, 8 till 10 on AM 1080 or ksco.com live stream. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, my guest today is John Dean. Now, Mr. Dean, one of the discoveries you make in your book is the fact that Nixon had a good idea who Deep Throat was, uh, the famous source who was leaking information to Woodward and Bernstein at the Washington Post. Um, If he knew who he was, uh, why didn't Nixon get rid of him? Well, he discussed that. What happened, to give the listener the uh, the context is uh, how, how it happened, and he knew it. Uh, we didn't know of Deep Throat at the time, because that wouldn't happen until the book was written and the identity of, of, of this character or leaker to Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein was, was named uh, or given that moniker by one of the editors. Mm-hmm. But uh, we did know that Mark Felt was leaking, uh, and that happened because in October of 72, I was at the Department of Justice, and the head of the criminal division Henry Peterson told me that a uh, an attorney representing a news organization had come in on an off-the-record conversation with Peterson, obviously to protect his, his client, mm-hmm. uh, and to report that Mark Felt, uh, who was the number two man at the FBI and the man that really was running the Watergate investigation day-to-day, was leaking like a sieve to this organization and the attorney who was raising it with Peterson was concerned they didn't want to be obstructing justice. They didn't want to be receiving uh, grand jury information if they shouldn't. And he was protecting himself and, and what have you. Peterson told me that he had not mentioned it to the attorney general at that point. He had not mentioned it to the acting director of the FBI, Pat Gray, because he worried about their overreaction to it. 
mm-hmm. uh, because they thought that, you know, a, a loose cannon occasionally leaking was worse than a cannon that was firing directly at everybody because he was angry and had been uh, fired, if you will. And so uh, I'm, I'm told I can take this information back to the White House and report it, which I did to Haldeman. Haldeman, in turn, takes it in and gives it to the president. Uh, here's where the difference in transcribing can make a, a big uh, difference. When Nixon hears this, uh, in the existing transcripts that I was reviewing by, by Stanley Cutler, he, his transcribers heard Nixon say at one point, you know, Bob, what I would do with felt. And then he has an expletive uh, <laughs> that is not unusual for Nixon. Yes, uh, not, not unusual at all. I hear something very different, and everybody who now listens to it can hear what I hear. He says at one point, Bob, you know what I would do if felt? Ambassadorship. And that's what he would later do with uh, Dick Helms, the head of the CIA, to ease him out of that job and not have... You mean ship them overseas? <laughs> ship them overseas and give him a, give him a, uh, a good job with a big title, and uh, that way you don't have a disgruntled uh, leaker uh, or somebody who's on the attack. And Nixon actually does tell Gray before he appoints him uh, to be the director of the FBI that his number two man is leaking and not, you know, he's clearly... Uh, doing it, uh, I think we all understood why why uh, Felt was doing it. He wanted the job. He wanted to be director of the FBI, and so he was trying. And to he address. didn't get the job, and he was disgruntled. And so the way you take care of someone disgruntled is you give them a nice, uh, wonderful title and job overseas. Is that right? No, 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 no. no. What they're trying to—you you got the sequence wrong, Rebecca. Ah. You got the timing off on that. Uh, see, we know in October, and there's an acting director. He he wants to get appointed first to the job that Gray will later be appointed to. I see. FBI. I and see. So he's trying to show that Gray can't control the FBI, which was true. And these these old former Hoover cronies uh, with felt in charge of them uh, are all doing their best to make sure no fighter comes in. And then when Gray is actually nominated, he tries, they work to destroy his nomination uh, uh. and so that he won't get it. It's not that, that uh, for example, Mark Felt sure didn't want uh, George McGovern elected because he would have cleaned out the entire FBI. <laughs> so it was a very, a, a very dangerous game he was playing, and he lost it. It didn't work. It didn't work. It backfired, actually. Uh, but uh, you, you know, I, I've had an opportunity to listen to uh, several hours of the Nixon tapes myself, and I, I think you'd agree there's some very how should I put this, vulgar moments on those tapes where Nixon makes horrific comments about Jews and blacks and the Chinese and certain members of Congress, women. I mean, on those grounds alone, you would think Nixon would have destroyed all those tapes since he was the one who ordered these recordings. So here's here's the million-dollar question. That I just can't figure it out. Why would he save those tapes? I mean, why didn't he have all of them destroyed immediately? He he does at one point in April uh, of 73 instruct Haldeman to do just that. Haldeman tells him, well, you know, Henry's making his own record of some of these things in the national security area like China and and tells Nixon, maybe you want to have your own record. And Nixon has a second thought. Then he said, yeah, I think that's probably right. We we should keep those. But let's get rid of the rest. Well, this Haldeman doesn't do anything, uh, and and what happens? He actually is instructed again by Nixon to do it, uh, and again argues with him as to what should and should not be done. It's a massive job, though, to go through and distill out the national security. Uh, okay, but in a situation like that, the, the old saying, better safe than sorry, applies, doesn't it? I mean, if, if, you, if you've got somebody that can figure out what, what you're going to erase and what you're not going to erase, right, which uh, admittedly was a major job, you know that from transcribing right. the, the tapes. Uh, well, it, uh, why, why, not, why not just kill it all? Well, that act, many people recommended that as soon as it was, it was disclosed. The, the, the interesting thing is Nixon did not even tell Al Haig that he had a voice-activated uh, device going. <laughs> Haig is stunned to find and can't believe the stupidity. Who He has nothing bad to say about Nixon, but on, in, a, in a side that uh, is not in the same place, he says he can't envision anybody so foolish is to record every word with a voice-activated machine uh, you have no control over. Uh, it, 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 it's I it's think, kind of mind-boggling, isn't it? 
Nixon thought no one could ever get to it, that he had the kind of power that, that uh, could prevent them from ever... Well, yep. there you go. That's that ruler mentality. Exactly. Nobody can get to it. No one can get to me. Uh, and that's, you know, pretty much the, the something that distinguishes a leader from a, a, a ruler. Yet, yet on the other hand, historians point out to the fact that Nixon has to be credited with opening up relations with China and negotiating the uh, anti-ballistics missiles treaty uh, and detente with so- the Soviet Union. He and Kissinger were a force to be contended with when it came to uh, foreign policy. And uh, many of these White House tapes give us insight into that relationship. If they, it, it, that's true. But I must say, I've never tried to do in another area, say China or uh, the ABM or, or the detente or any of those things to, to follow the thread to see whether it was Nixon or Kissinger. Uh, Nixon clearly had the idea on China because he wrote about it before yes. he was president. Uh, but implementing it, what, what, the bottom line of what I found as to why Watergate, it's not necessarily his criminality and, and that mentality. It's his inability to manage his seat of the pants decision making, uh, thoughtless decision making, where he has evidence he at his fingertips he refuses to use it to examine it to understand even what the options are this is this is a man who if if indeed uh he was responsible for the initiatives you just mentioned i can't believe he did it alone uh based on the intense look i took at watergate uh, his historians and scholars of, of this presidency are going to have to re-examine how, in fact, he accomplished what he did it do. Because I don't believe it's him. I think it's his staff. Mm-hmm. And and Kissinger uh, probably had a, a great deal to do with it when you look at Kissinger's record. And, Absolutely. Uh, and Absolutely. his intellect uh, also, and understanding of culture. Uh, no question. Uh, he, you know, he had a, a lot to uh, do with opening up uh, China in particular, as well as uh, the the detente with the Soviet Union. Um, you had a very special relationship with Nixon yourself, uh, working as White House counsel. Um, I have to believe that all of this research uh, has uh, changed a little bit of what you think of Nixon uh, as you listen to these tapes. And now uh, we have to take a final break. But when we come back, I'd like to ask you uh, how this research over the last four years might have changed some of your perceptions of the man that you were with alongside uh, for such a long time. You're listening to the Costa Report. No matter what business you're in, what happens in Washington can make the difference between business success or failure. That's why understanding where government is headed is so important in today's competitive business environment. But where can you find experts who know firsthand the inner workings of our nation's capital? The American Program Bureau is your leading source for speakers whose experience offer unique insights into where U.S. policy is headed. Speakers like Seth Harris, former acting U.S. Secretary of Labor, Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff, and General Carl Eikenberry, former U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan. For your next meeting or conference, contact the American Program Bureau at apbspeakers.com or 617-614-1600. That's apbspeakers.com. The American Program Bureau, making history one speech at a time. We're fortunate to have Scott Caraccioli with us to explain how the process of making sparkling wines influences a winemaker's approach to making a Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Yeah, it's really a driving factor in terms of style and really kind of making it a little bit more old world. Um, we use all French oak, which is the same thing that we use in our sparkling wines. So I would imagine that someone who's not making sparkling wines will take a totally different approach. Yeah, it's a matter of viewpoint when it comes down to when you have a French winemaker making bubbles, you end up with a leaner, more European style of wine. To find out more about Caraccioli Wines, visit us at www.caracciolicellars.com or stop by our tasting room in downtown Carmel, California. That's Caraccioli Cellars, C-A-R-A-C-C-I-O-L-I, Cellars, where you have to spell it to drink it. 
Oktoberfest is here. The Friends of Hospice present their 31st annual Oktoberfest on Sunday, October 5th from noon to 4 at the Santa Cruz Elks Lodge. Enjoy a delicious lunch of authentic German food, traditional music, and a fantastic array of silent and live auction items. Admission is free to this family-friendly event. All proceeds support Hospice of Santa Cruz County. Brought to you by KSCO and KOMY and Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Sam Quinn for Shirt Crafters, and I'm here with Shirt Crafters owner Scott D. Gold. And Scott, what do you think sets Shirt Crafters apart? Well, Sam, it starts with our graphic design department. We can take any tired old logo and turn it into an eye-grabbing brand. Then we can make that logo stand out in the community by turning it into a full-size vehicle decal. Next, we put that logo on polos, hats, and t-shirts, and just about anything else you can think of for your employees and customers for promotional purposes. And that's how we brand your business with Shirt Crafters. Top quality design and printing, fast turnaround, and right on the price. Shirt Crafters is located at 111 Engle Street in Santa Cruz, or go to shirtcrafters.com. You can give them a call at 831-423-0537. That's Shirt Crafter at 831-423-0537. 0537 Here's Charles Friedman. People are are perpetrating atrocities with firearms every day. It happens. It's not part of society that we like, but it's real. And the police have the job of attempting to stop these incidents before they start. If they see a person, regardless of whether it's a teenager or a full-grown adult, with what looks to be a weapon, yes, they're going to ask some questions. Tune in The Charles Friedman Show weekdays from noon to 2 on KSEO AM 1080. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is former White House counsel to President Nixon and best-selling author, Mr. John Dean. So before the break, I was saying that the research that went into your recent book must have given you a few new insights into a man who you worked with and knew personally. Well, actually, I, as White House counsel, as I say in a little prefatory part of the book, uh, it's really the testimony from Alex Butterfield who explains my setup in the pecking order. I really had very little contact with Richard Nixon uh, as White House counsel. Uh, John how, Ehrlichman, how can that be? <laughs> well, uh, John Ehrlichman, who was the original White House counsel, mm-hmm. never gave up the title. He gave up the title, but never the position. And Nixon uh, never wanted him to give up the position. He really remains uh, the White House counsel throughout. Uh, and I'm in turn reporting up to either Ehrlichman or Haldeman, and only when they start calling on me much later. So I. I got to know Nixon much better uh, than the, say, 37 conversations I had with him on Watergate and, and the other sort of larger meetings I was in with him, uh, where he's really on stage in those. Uh, and he's, he, he's very different with different members of the staff. With me, he's on a very high level. With Ray Price, one of his favorite speechwriters, he was on a very high level. Kind of gets down and, 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 and dirty with people like Haldeman and uh, Chuck Colson, for example. Uh, with Ehrlichman, he's, he's again, a very different uh, personality. So it depends on with whom he is speaking. He's something of a chameleon, and, and while he's uncomfortable with strangers, uh, he, once he gets comfortable with his staff, he, he, is, he really takes a role with them and uh, puts them in, in a position he views them in and, and sort of plays that role of president for them as he sees it. So it, it varies, and different people would get different reactions uh, uh, to him. A very complex, interesting personality, no question. Yes, and I, it all comes out in the tapes. I mean, at one moment, he's very presidential and very professional. The next moment, uh, you think you're listening to... Uh, you know, people in a locker room that don't expect anyone to listen in on them. Well, you know, uh, it's, it's rather also, shocking. It's, it's interesting also how articulate he can be when he's in public and uh, in a seemingly extemporaneous fashion. In yes. fact, he typically had spent hours preparing uh, what appeared to be an extemporaneous uh, set of remarks or responses to inquiries for a, during a press conference. He is 
very inarticulate on the tapes, which make transcribing even that much more difficult. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons I don't do transcripts, but rather I pull narrative and dialogue out of the transcripts. But yes. the transcripts are, I have four million words over here <laughs> beside my desk uh, in, in 21 three-inch volumes of, of uh, about 8,500 pages of these things. Well, that sounds like the follow-on uh, next 10 books. No. <laughs> been, been there, done that. <laughs> uh, uh, now, uh, you were a first-hand witness to a lot of the comings and goings in the Oval Office, so I, I think it's uh, fitting to ask you, uh, what effect uh, Watergate and Nixon's subsequent resignation has had, in your view, on the highest office in the nation? Well, I don't think there's any question that it left a, a watermark, so to speak, on what is clearly going to be an, uh, an unacceptable standard. The, uh, the Nixonian label is something that no politician or high-level official wants to have hung on him today. Uh, Watergate is not as well understood as that uh, symbolic negative that Nixon really carries. Uh, and he will probably always carry that. Uh, anything that he did right in his presidency is pretty well overwhelmed by what he did that was wrong, and the fact he was the first president to resign. So that's that'll always be a part of his presidential history. Uh, I think he's a you know I think he's a great study uh, just in watching human nature play out. That that's one what I found really interesting in the tapes, including my own. Uh, tapes. I'd read transcripts, but not heard them all. Mm -hmm. And every page of the of the book really has something I didn't know before, uh, even with my own conversations. So it was a it was a fascinating drill. And had I not found it interesting, it, trust me, I would not have put four <laughs> years in it. <laughs> so, what about subsequent presidents? I mean, is there any part of you that feels that water like uh, overreach continues, but maybe less clumsy and less reckless? Well, I did write a book about the Bush II presidency called Worse Than Watergate, mm -hmm. and it really referred to the secrecy that got reimposed in a very heavy-handed way by particularly Dick Cheney, uh, who, who wanted to close down all transparency, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the other branches and the public as well. Uh, and the fact that I, I, I've often thought, even on his darkest day, that Richard Nixon, who was a World War II vet and knew well uh, the stories about waterboarding, would have never authorized torture as president. Be, he's the kind who would have seen the blowback potential that we're now experiencing. And so I think, yes, there, are, there have been examples that are even worse than Watergate. And that is that, you know, we would, we would uh, uh, abuse our power and ignore our laws and say that uh, torture is acceptable conduct for Americans. So we see a lot, or we hear a lot about overreach of the IRS, of the NSA collecting metadata. Uh, does that worry you in some way, having gone well, through the Watergate years? I've looked, I've looked at the IRS scandal and find it ludicrous. Uh, you know, the, there is no scandal there. It is, a, uh, it is a manufactured scandal that doesn't really uh, hold up and is not going to go anywhere. Uh, the NSA and, and the information there, I think anybody who didn't understand that that was going on after reading the Patriot Act was pretty naive. Uh, so while it was confirmation of, of the suspicions, uh, it certainly wasn't particularly surprising. And I think those who, who in Congress voted for the Patriot Act understood what they were doing. Uh, well, we like to think so. Well, they, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Let's say some of them understood what they were doing. Yeah, there you go. Well, now I want to be sure to mention your new book is titled The Nixon Defense. And do you have a website where listeners can go to get more information? I really don't. Uh, I, I, I write for uh, justia.com. Yes. Uh, in fact, I, I, I just sent my column off before we got on the phone. Good. <laughs> Good. Well, I'll, I'll be sure and try to pick that up. Uh, but your book is available on Amazon.com. I want to mention that. It's available in every bookstore uh, near you. Uh, and it, was, it's been, it, it did three weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and is still selling. My books sell uh, over longer periods. I hit peaks and then they just keep going. So I'm fortunate. 
It's a it's a wonderful book. Uh, I I promise anyone that's interested in understanding uh, a, what the accurate historical record is, there is uh, I I believe no better book than the Nixon defense. I highly recommend it. Unfortunately, we are out of time for today. But before we say goodbye, uh, I do want to thank you for the four years of your time that you invested in getting to the bottom of that question: What did the president know, and when did he know it? Thank you so much, Mr. Dean. Thank you. Uh, if your station is leaving us after this first hour and uh, you have a question or a comment to make about our interview with John Dean today, uh, take a moment to email me at my website at RebeccaCosta.com or you can drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. This year marks the uh, 40-year anniversary of the resignation of President Nixon and, uh, the, and a scandal that shook our nation. And central to that controversy was the riveting testimony of White House counsel John Dean, without whom it is likely the truth may have never come to light. Yet years later, even Dean was not convinced he knew everything. So he backtracked over thousands of hours of tape recordings and documents to fill in those blanks. If you missed the full interview with Dean today or any of our other guests, remember that you can download previous episodes of the Costa Report from our website, Apple iTunes, Podbean, and our YouTube channel. And while you're at our website, take a moment to check out my book, The Watchman's Rattle. It's available in hard copy, paperback, audio format and also as an ebook so no matter how you like to read we have it in that format takes less than a minute to order. The Watchman's Rattle explains for the first time why the growing complexity of data and processes and the decisions we must make uh, lead to an over-reliance on unproven beliefs and opinions rather than empirical facts. My guest next week is former governor of Pennsylvania, congressman, and the first secretary of Homeland Security for the United States, Mr. Tom Ridge. He'll be with us to weigh in on ISIS and the growing threat to U.S. security. Abroad. Don't miss Tom Ridge next week right here on the only news program that puts policy ahead of politics. Now stay tuned for another hour of Straight Talk Radio. You're listening to the Costa Report. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.